Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. I think this is episode 259, Bill, where, as we always marvel at how many of these we've done, uh, here's uh, yet another um, milestone. We're approaching 300. We'll be there before we know it. Yep. Happy to be on YouTube and using our live stream functionality. Uh, as our producer always tees up, if you have a question, please put it in the chat. And uh, as it fits into the conversation, we will we will bring you into the discussion. That's kind of the point. So we moved our naval review issue two months to the left this year. It's March instead of May. Um, that was intended because it is 2021 in review, and by the time we get to May, it's, you know, five months are gone by. And so that was a call you guys made, Bill. And as a result, we have some great content in this double issue. There's your cover right there. Um, and uh, so any other news we want to let the audience know about before we bring our guest in? Uh, yeah, just a little bit for those of, uh, of our audience who maybe aren't that familiar with the, the Naval Review issue of proceedings. Uh, if you went back to the 70s and early 1980s, there was a separate publication that the Naval Institute published every year called the Naval Review. So you had proceedings, 12 issues, and then you had this thing called the Naval Review. And, uh, and then in the early 80s, we combined the Naval Review and made it the May issue of proceedings, which is always our thickest issue of the year, usually somewhere around uh, you know, 140 to 160, 70 pages or so. Uh, and so, uh, and it was, it was usually the May issue. Um, but when, when it started back in the 1980s, we didn't have USNI news following the, the news day in and day out, week in and week out, week out you know, what was happening in the sea services. And now we do. We've had the USNI news team on the, uh, on the beat every day for, uh, you know, for about eight years now doing great, a great job. And so this year, we, as we were planning for the Naval Review in, in 2021, we thought a couple of things. One, let's move it closer to the year that we're reviewing. So instead of May, as you just said, Ward, we'll do, we'll do it in March. Um, and, um, and the other thing is we wanted to get much more analysis out of the review section authors. So we do the Naval Review, the Marine Corps Year in Review, the Coast Guard Year in Review. And then our guest today is the, uh, the author for 19 years straight now of the Merchant Marine and uh, Civil Maritime, uh, World Maritime Review. And, you know, this is one of those things that I think is unique. It is unique to the, the Naval Review issue of the magazine. It's also something it's not a topic that's in proceedings every month. Um, and so if there's one article that I would recommend to all of our readers, Navy, Marine Corps and Coast Guard, uh, that, that you, you, know, you probably don't get anywhere else. It is this Merchant Marine and Global Maritime Review that Shashi Kumar writes every year because, you know, the sea services uh, exist to protect the sea lines of communication, to project power abroad, uh, to protect, you know, commercial shipping and uh, the global economy. Uh, and Shashi writes about it. He's an expert on it. He was a, a, a master mariner as a civilian merchant marine for uh, more than a decade. He's worked for the Maritime Administration for quite some time. He's a scholar. He studies this topic. And as I said, for 19 years, he's been writing the Merchant Marine Review for proceedings. And it's one of the things that I look forward to every year. And I just, I learn so much from reading it. It's usually, you know, six or eight pages and I go, wow, there's a lot happening uh, out there on the world ocean that perhaps people who are, you know, focused on military maritime issues uh, are just not aware of. And I think it's a, uh, it's a great service that we do. So uh, I'm really happy uh, for the second year in a row to welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Shashi Kumar. Shashi, great to have you on the show again. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me back. So uh, on everyone's mind right now is what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, what's happening in the Black Sea. Uh, and, and we'll get to that. I want to get to that. But first, let's talk a little bit about 2021. So I remember when we had you on the show last year, you know, the middle of the pandemic, it had been going on for about a year. There were some really significant impacts to the global shipping industry from the from the pandemic. 
Um, recap that a little bit and then talk, if you would, about how that changed in 2021 and, and whether it's, you know, are those problems resolving themselves in terms of the impact to, uh, to merchant marines around the world? Very good. I will do my best to recap that um, as succinctly as possible. Um, so the last two years have been probably the most difficult years for the merchant marine um, or the maritime industry across the board worldwide for a variety of reasons. Um, we began the year with having had no experience dealing with the pandemic like the one that we saw uh, in breaking out in 2020 March, around that time frame. Uh, what resulted almost immediately is a lack of understanding as to which way to proceed. What do we do with our ships? What do we do with our mariners? How do we keep the global supply chains functioning? Well, to cut a long story short, I would say that across the board, the industry has done exceptionally well in terms of handling those challenges. Um, the, the essential items like uh, personal protection equipment, medicines, they all kept moving. There were some uh, hiccups in some uh, bigger, broader areas, but essentially the, the maritime industry and the merchant mariners kept the supply chains functioning and we received our vital supplies from across the world, not only here in this country, but worldwide. Uh, I would say the, the, the sector that probably suffered the most from COVID-19 is the community of merchant mariners themselves. They were doing all these selfless um, sacrifices, yet they themselves became victims of COVID-19 in no uncertain terms. There was a time during which about four, 400,000 merchant mariners were stuck on board their ships, unable to uh, go ashore, unable to go back home at the end of their tenure on board the ship. It was a very sad plight. And it has left some very difficult uh, memories, or I would say battle scars for the merchant marine community, which we are still suffering from. Uh, but having said that, I think over the uh, two year time period, the merchant marine community has overcome some of the initial challenges. And um, the fact that they were not considered as essential workers by many parts of the world, uh, those things have been somewhat overcome. However, um, at this point, we have virtually all commercial operations back to normal until about, I would say until a month ago, uh, when the Russian scenario started heating up, the Russian-Ukrainian scenario started heating up. So um, the overall impact of um, COVID-19 on the industry, it could have been a lot worse than what it turned out. It so happened that uh, the peaks and valleys affecting the major commercial markets kind of, it did not happen in unison. There was a cyclical nature, you know, it affected certain parts more uh, severely at certain times and the other parts less severely. So it kind of flattened out the curves and uh, overall the industry performed better than what we anticipated or how we anticipated the industry will uh, perform. So, Sashi, uh, you know, I follow a lot of business news and, and listen to Bloomberg and I listen to Marketplace. And, you know, the, the supply chain has certainly been just, you know, front and center, uh, not just for me, not just for those who kind of follow business news, but also for anybody that's paying attention to inflation, that's paying attention to what's happening uh, how the goods and services that we all want and need are moving, you know, from the immediate shortages of toilet paper and and uh, paper towels, you know, in in, the, in early 2020, 
uh, to the, you know, the cost rise in, in the stuff that we're ordering that, you know, through Amazon and, and other, you know, online delivery services. So uh, I, I'm aware that, you know, uh, I mean, the global shipping industry is just a huge part of that supply chain, perhaps something that is just taken for granted by most people. And, in, in, you know, go back two, three years ago, people didn't really think about it. You order something, it comes from China, it comes from overseas, stuff moves, you get it delivered to you. And, uh, and life is good, right? But the shipping industry, and, and your article lays this out, there's a whole, it's kind of fractured into a, some different types of, of global maritime shipping, right? So you've got container shipping, you've got bulk shipping, you've got liquid nat liquefied natural gas, you've got um, you know he heavy, very, very large uh, crude, crude uh, carrying ships. Um, you get the cruise ships, right? So talk about how things have uh, changed in the past year, 18 months for each of those different segments of the global shipping industry? Sure. So the supply chain issue that you began with, uh, it is a major issue and it is, as you know, it's still ongoing. It is still in the headlines. We have made some significant improvements, uh, but when we talk about the supply chain, we are primarily talking about the consumer goods which come to us from China or Korea or Taiwan or somewhere else in the world, uh, loaded in a uh, 40 foot container or sometimes a bigger 48 foot container and so forth. Now, these consumer goods, um, they are carried by container ships and the market that really facilitates this is the what we call the liner market. The concept of liner shipping is ships running on regular schedules, predictable freight rates, and reliable service. The ships arrive on time, leave on time. We can kind of set our calendars based on that. That's the way that it is supposed to work. And that's the way it, it has worked over the years. However, what happened during the COVID-19, the pandemic uh, time period, you know, when we were under significant pressure from the pandemic, is that in general, our demand far exceeded any projections that anybody could make. People with all the money in their pockets, um, not being able to spend that money on travel and other sorts of whatever they would do with their money. What they did was to buy a lot of stuff. And obviously a lot of these things came from overseas, uh, especially from the Far East. So, the, the demand for carrying containers or the, the demand for bringing consumer goods from foreign ports uh, went far beyond the expectations of the carrier community as well as those who handle these cargoes. So as the cargo started arriving over here to the American ports in particular, especially on the West Coast because they are the typical gateway ports for majority of the um, imports coming to our country from the Far East, they were piling up on the pier, unable to move from there to the interior points. Now, with the supply chain, unless those containers move from the pier to the interior points, the next ship cannot come there and release its cargo. And Remember, these are big ships. These ships are bringing in somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 containers. That's a lot of containers. And these big ships, these new ships, some of them are as long as four football fields end to end, which is like a quarter mile long. So what do you do with all these ships? Bringing cargoes, you know, ships arriving one after one um, from China or Japan, Korea, and so forth, piling up in ports like Los Angeles, Long Beach, and later on in some of the other ports. Essentially, what you need is a facility or the, the capability to move these containers to interior points like Chicago or Atlanta or New York and other consumption centers as soon as these ships arrive. The, those seamless movements kind of broke down. You know, the, those double stack trains which carry those containers 
or the 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 trucks which make that immediate delivery from the pier side to the train so that it can move those containers to the interior points. All these things felt or built or contributed towards the bottleneck, which became tighter and tighter for a variety of reasons. One, we had we were not prepared for that kind of demand. Secondly, there was a shortage of workers because of COVID and some people obviously were hesitant to go back to work because of the fear of the pandemic. So for a variety of reasons, we have problems with equipment, we have problems with um, lack of planning, we have problems with uh, human resources. So for, for those reasons, these movements did not, it did not build up and that supply chain bottleneck enhanced over the weeks and months and contributed towards what happened six months, eight months, 10 months or a year into uh, the issues that we, you know, we kept reading or watching every day as headlines on our TV screens. Now, at this point, uh, with the vaccination of workers, um, with some additional capacity being um, introduced to uh, solve some of these issues, those bottlenecks are slowly um, decreasing and the number of ships being tied up, you know, waiting for a berth in places like uh, Long Beach, California and Los Angeles and so forth. Uh, That waiting period has certainly gone down. We don't hear so much about the constraints here on our side of the Pacific Ocean although there are still some constraints in places like the Chinese ports because of severe COVID restrictions imposed by the Chinese government over there. So that's from the perspective of um, uh, the the liner shipping or the container shipping um, business. However, uh, one good, I mean, whether you call it a good story or a bad story, that depends upon who you are. From the perspective of the industry, what happened because of this is a significant demand for um, carrying containers, which led to the freight rates going up to unbelievable levels, to the point where they were making 20 times, 30 times more than what they were typically used to making. So those shipping companies that have historically been losing money, they all reported extraordinarily high profits towards the end of the last calendar year. I would say that uh, the top tier container vessel operators uh, collectively made something like $200 billion uh, in estimated uh, profits by the end of the year. Uh, That's before taxes. So this was something that the industry had never used to. And it is also worth pointing out that this particular sector of the industry is highly uh, concentrated in the sense that there are only a small number of players given the high cost of providing this kind of service. And those carriers, you know, they, they have been, there have been some allegations that they have been abusing their uh, oligopolistic power. And there is significant uh, concern raised by stakeholders which has resulted in congressional hearings and investigations. And there is a bill which is right now um, being addressed by Senate, which might uh, impact some of the uh, liberties given to the liner shipping companies calling American ports. So I don't want to keep going on and on about liners. Let me also quickly touch upon the other sectors. Uh, We all know about the cruise shipping industry. It was a difficult year for the cruise shipping industry, and it is still slowly recovering from that. Uh, you could, you know, one could very well say that almost one year has been written off by the cruise shipping sector. What these shipping companies have done, the cruise shipping operators have done primarily is to get rid of their old shipping tonnage in the meantime, to cut their losses, and slowly they are recovering, they're resuming their services, but still it is nowhere near where they were typically operating in terms of the number of ships and the number of services 
provided by them. As far as the, the tanker sector is concerned, this is one sector that um, um, has had a very difficult last couple of years. As the COVID scenario began, the industry itself was suffering from significant overtonnaging, which led to a decline in freight rates and poor profitability for the tanker ship operators. There were expectations that things will shake out and they, you know, the demand will pick up as consumers started using their vehicles and traveling and so on and so forth. That really did not materialize or if at all it did materialize at the end of the first year, it was not sufficient to bring the industry out of the kind of uh, bad economic straits that they were in. The expectation was by the end of uh, 2021, things will improve much better, uh, especially with some of the carriers, uh, some of the tanker operators getting rid of their older tonnage. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the getting rid of the older tonnage part has not materialized, even though the price for um, scrap tonnage has gone up significantly uh, over the last few years, uh, especially the last year. Um, so the tanker industry continues to be in doldrums. They are not doing well in terms of profitability, in terms of revenues. Moving on to the other sector, which is the... Real quick, just before you move on from tankers, I'm curious right now with the, the spike in oil prices, right? Uh, is that is that uh, bullish for the, the tanker industry or is that likely to, uh, you know, throw throw an additional monkey wrench into the into the business for uh, for those companies that own, own uh, you know, very large crude carriers? That's a very good question, uh, Bill. Thank you. I mean, my the way I see it, and it is not going to lift all the oil tankers, you know, uh, in terms of you know a rising tide lifting all the ships. That's not. We haven't seen that yet. It's too early to to project that. In general, when the price goes up for oil, consumption goes down. That's that's the typical, you know, that's the rationale. Higher the price, lower the demand. So with crude oil trading well over $100 a barrel. Um, it's not really going to help the industry across the board. But having said that, there is one segment of the uh, tanker um, ships. It is called the Aframax tankers. These are the smaller tankers. They can carry crude oil as well as refined oil, typically about 80,000 dead weight tons. Now, these ships are very useful in the Russian market. You know, they can go to the smaller Russian ports, load the Russian crude oil or the Russian products, and they can supply the markets where they typically supply. So what we have seen, or what the industry is seeing in the last, um, I would say in the last two to three weeks, the, the demand for these smaller tankers has gone up. Um, that's supposed to remain high uh, because the Russians do not have a lot of alternatives to supply their oil. Now, uh, bulk of their oil obviously goes to the European Union countries. Um, I think the statistics show that it's about 54% going to European Union, 25%. Um, well, the, the European Union oil mostly goes from uh, the Baltic, uh, I'm sorry, from the Black Sea area and to some extent from the North Atlantic. Um, about 25% of their oil goes to the China, Japan, Korea area. And that oil typically goes from the far eastern parts of Russia. And then there's a small amount going from the Black Sea area to Turkey. Now, so these exports, you know, especially with um, what's going on now, there is no other option other than shipping these things by ships. Now, is it possible to move the Black Sea oil through a pipeline? No, there aren't any such pipelines. So there is going to be significant demand to move the Russian crude oil as well as some amount of refined oil using these smaller tankers, which has got you know, 
which is reflected in the market right now. The prices are, the freight rates are going up. The charter hires are going up. So let's bring in a question related to that. So Totoro Porco asks, with many shipping companies such as Merck's no longer servicing Russia, will this have much of an impact on global shipping capacity? So you, you sort of address, address that just now. Um, but if we could yes. put a finer point on it for one of our viewers. Well, the, 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 major, the major impact is going to be in terms of the export of wheat and corn and those sort of you know, commodities. As you, I mean, as we know, it's the breadbasket exports coming out from Ukraine and Russia. That's, you know, they supply about 25% of world grain imports. So that's going to be affected. But if you look at the other bulk commodities, Russia, neither Russia nor uh, Ukraine is a major player. Now, looking at the container sector, again, the Russian ports um, in the Baltic, area, sorry, in the Black Sea area or the Ukrainian ports, they are not really major liner ports. So the, the ban from Maersk and Hapak Lloyd and other major container ship operators, that's really not going to affect so much in terms of the number of containers moving into that part of Russia or Ukraine. Um, so I think the impact will be minimal. However, what's going to happen is, the, you know, it's almost at the end of the supply chain there in Ukraine. Uh, the containers coming to Northern European ports or maybe the Mediterranean ports and going by trucks to Ukraine and places like that. So those containers are going to get piled up over there. So in terms of supply chain efficiency, in terms of availability of containers, uh, in, in, in sort of lessening the supply chain uh, delays and so forth, yeah, there will be an impact. But in terms of cargo movements themselves, I think the impact is going to be minimal. So a lot of pundits and chattering class on TV have talked about the potential loss of Odessa and this land bridge that the Russians seem to want to build along the southern edge, you know, absent taking Kiev and some other urban centers. It looks like they've had some success. They have amphibs that have been threatening to land since this started. So if I just heard you right, the impacts in the event of Russian, the Russian military taking over Odessa to the global supply chain is minimal. Is that is that okay? You that's know, is that accurate. That's the way I see it. I, I don't see it as a major impact on global supply chains. Uh, it is definitely going to have some impact on exports of wheat from Ukraine in particular. Yes. Gotcha. Uh, Sashi, back for a second to another one of our uh, viewers' questions. Uh, Tyson M. Uh, asked, uh, because you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the high profits in this cycle for liners. Uh, do you expect recapitalization of the major players, uh, shipping and tanker fleets, or will profits be revisited predominantly, or reinvested, sorry, predominantly into non-maritime logistics sectors? So you, you mentioned those trains, the trucks that move uh, the containers uh, out of the, uh, uh, the receiving yards and, and off to the rail yards and onto the nation's highways. Where do you think that, that uh, those profits will be invested? Well, the, the recapitalization part is very valid. It's very true and it is required. Uh, but, you know, take the case of liner shipping companies like Maersk, for example. Um, they are also going to invest a lot more money into the supply chain infrastructure. The MERS strategy is not to keep on building more and more big ships. Certainly they will need, build them as needed, but more importantly, they want to have more uh, efficient internal supply chain networks. So part of their strategy, they, they have recently acquired one of the American logistics uh, service provider I forgot the name, but it's uh, an investment of more than a billion dollars. This was announced about a month ago. Um, so those sort of investments are going on. Now, there are some liner operators like the Mediterranean Shipping Company, which 
Ironically, it's based in Switzerland. Um, the Mediterranean shipping company is planning to invest more money into bigger container ships. And they are the ones who have some of the, you know, I think they right now their shipping capacity exceeds even that of Maersk. They are the number one capacity owner in the liner shipping or the container shipping business right now. So they keep on investing and they plan to keep on investing in even bigger container ships, the biggest ones now carrying or capable of carrying 24,000 containers plus. Now, um, simultaneously, I should also emphasize that all these container operators, as well as other vessel operators, they are all looking into um, investing money into new ships. However, they are also concerned about what is going to happen in terms of um, carbon neutral ships of the future. So there is some concern about that. So at this point, they are kind of waiting for more signals from intergovernmental agencies such as the IMO and uh, other national authorities, which might influence what kind of ships that they will build um, in terms of the propulsion power and so on and so forth. Uh, it, touch on that a little bit more. Let's scratch scratch deeper on that. So I remember a couple of years ago, I want to say it was 2017, maybe 2018, when the IMO uh, essentially enacted a low sulfur fuel mandate, right? And there was, you know, it took some it took some time for a lot of companies, particularly with older ships, to either convert or to uh, to put scrubbers and fuel, you know, um, uh, filter systems into their ships so that they could burn that lower sulfur fuel. So where where is the shipping industry now with low sulfur fuel? Is it universal now across the entire globe? And, and back to your point a minute ago, um, where are we going with more capable, more fuel efficient ships uh, for the future? Excellent questions. Well, um, again, Bill, um, at that time when we spoke or the, the period that you mentioned, three years ago when the low sulfur fuel oil became mandatory for uh, certain parts of the world. Uh, there were two options. One, you could go with the low sulfur fuel oil or you install scrubbers. There are a number of ships that install the scrubbers and there are a number of ship owners who went with low sulfur uh, fuel oil. The other option is to consider uh, alternate propulsion mechan uh, fuel such as liquefied um, uh, natural gas, LNG. Now, until recently, despite our, uh, you know, our fear that the price of low sulfur fuel oil is going to skyrocket, that did not really happen. Perhaps it was helped by the, by the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, the demand for shipping services obviously went down. And the price differential between the low sulfur fuel oil and the more traditional bunker fuel oil that they use on ships, it was minimal, you know, I mean, barely about $100. In the last uh, two months, however, it has changed. That differential between low sulfur fuel oil and the traditional bunker fuel oil has multiplied at least three times. Like right now, for example, if you want to buy low sulfur fuel oil, it's at least $300 more, $300 per ton more than the traditional fuel oil. So right now for a vessel operator that is using the low sulfur fuel oil, a ton of that oil is going to cost upward of $1,000. Vis-a-vis the traditional oil costing somewhere around $600 six to seven hundred dollars at the major bunker ports so that's one part of it all right so those ship owners who invested money into um, the technology whereby you can burn liquefied natural gas a lot of people consider lng to be the fuel of the future uh, unfortunately you know as we learn more about this fuel there is something called methane slip when you operate when you use lng as a propellant which does not help in terms of you know, emission coming out from these ships. So 
the the appetite for LNG, well, it is still there, but the ship owners are not looking upon LNG as the uh, solution going forward. What some of the companies, especially Maersk, uh, they seem to have taken a lead in this. You know, we we all heard about the year 2050 uh, net zero goal and so forth. Well, what Maersk has announced is they want to beat that by 10 years. By 2040, they want to have certain number of their vessels meeting all those requirements. And they're, they're planning to invest money into uh, methanol as a propellant. So there are initiatives taking place by some of the leading shipping companies like that. But vast majority of the ship owners are waiting for more guidance from the IMO, uh, the European Union, and the U.S. and other major uh, decision makers in this in this um, uh, path forward. So, Shashi, how does how does methanol work as a fuel in terms of net zero? How does how does that? I mean, I know that methanol is is uh, renewable because you you grow corn or you grow uh, you know some sort of uh, uh, you know crop that then you. Uh, distill and, and make turn into ethyl, you know, uh, alcohol, ethanol, methanol, uh, and burn it. But um, I don't know that that's a, a net zero fuel. Well, the 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 expectation is burning methanol. Um, again, I'm not um, so much into alternative fuel um, science, but my understanding is that it will uh, reduce the emissions, the carbon monoxide emissions, et cetera, coming out from ships significantly to the point where it will assist towards reaching that goal compared to what is happening right now. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. Um, you know, everyone in the United States is looking at uh, gas prices. Every time you drive by a gas station, you can't help seeing now almost $5 a gallon. Uh, here in the DC area, there's a lot of stations I've seen with where it's above five, at least for, for premium. And uh, truckers are paying, you know, per, per fill-up on, you know, a, a long-haul semi-rig, you know, three or $400 more per, per tank of gas now. So on a ship that's, tra- you know, transiting, let's say, from uh, Hong Kong or Shanghai to the port of Long Beach, um, the increase over the last month, say, in fuel prices, what did they see in terms of the added cost of taking a, a container ship that carries 10, 15,000 containers across the Pacific? Is that is that like a million dollars per per transit, a half a million dollars extra per transit? And it, it, what what how, how big a contribution to the, the cost is that? Well, that's. These ships are burning something like three, four hundred tons on a per day when the ship wow. is sailing across the oceans. You know, so so all you need to do is to multiply. You know, if the price differential is like if it has gone up by say five hundred dollars, you know, when you burn three hundred tons per day, you multiply by that five hundred. You can see this is. This is serious amount of money. I have not done the estimates, but in general, this is this is the biggest aspect of operating a vessel: the cost of fuel, and the the manpower comes next. You know, the the fuel cost is the biggest component, and this is a huge, huge expense for them. And it's going to be passed on to the consumers. So expect inflation. Expect not just pay more at the pump, but as we saw and we talked about this last time you were on the show. Um, with ever given, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to disturb the global supply chain in ways where suddenly you're like, where's my lawn furniture when I'm at Home Depot? It's like, well, it's stuck in the Suez Canal. You know, where are those cool rims that I thought I was going to be getting? All of this stuff that we're just blissfully ignorant of how stuff arrives on our shelves. Uh, And this is also the lesson of uh, the current war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. So, um, our good friend Antonio asks, are there any new players emerging as far as ports worldwide is concerned as a result of the pandemic? So has the center of gravity shifted at all to unexpected places? Well, 
not in terms of ports per se, but let me let me put it this way. So, for example, the infrastructure bill, which the Biden administration passed um, recently, uh, the port development grants, what they call the PIDP grants, Port Infrastructure Development Program. This has been doubled uh, to $450 million per year for five years. So that's about $5 billion. Now, we in this country, we have not really provided a lot of money for the port sector uh, because our policy perspective has been ports are run by, uh, technically run by a state or a state port authority or someone. The federal investment was kind of limited other than, you know, they would dredge the waters and so forth. But the investments typically came from the state port authority or something like that. The whole idea of giving port grants in this country began, I think, only about 11 years ago or something. Um, all of a sudden, there's a lot of money going into American ports now. So we are, you know, especially in our case, the American ports are now going to have sufficient resources to build their infrastructure, bring them up to the top tier status that you would see in many foreign ports, come perhaps to the same level as some of them because they are far ahead of us in terms of infrastructure, in terms of handling capability and efficiency and so forth. I think this will help the American ports uh, perform a lot better in future years. And I, I strongly believe that it will make our ports more uh, competitive as well as more prepared for uh, the supply chain challenges like what we just witnessed. Sashi, uh, yeah, our, our viewer Tyson, word you're muted. Go ahead. You're, you're reading what I was reading. So yeah. go take it. Tyson asks, how significant is cybersecurity becoming a matter of major concern for shipping entities? Uh, and the dynamics here could be similar to environmental investment, slow until the IMO mandates them. Yeah, the, this is a ma uh, major concern. <laughs> there is a lot of cyber issues or cyber attacks happening in the industry. I think most people know, or those people who are aware of transportation uh, challenges, they know about it. Um, the Maersk line was uh, affected significantly by a cyber attack a couple of years ago. And just two weeks ago, I mean, I don't think it was released until last week, Hapak Lloyd, their ships were affected by, you know, the, it was a phishing kind of thing. So you would think that you're going to Hapak Lloyd website and uh, but you are being taken somewhere else. And this came out um, about a week ago. Another company also reported similar challenges just a week ago. So this is a major concern as well. I mean, there's no shortage of concerns. Um, IMO is not going to, from what I know, again, I'm not part of any IMO delegation, but from what I know, the IMO is pretty much leaving it to uh, the state authorities. So in other words, in our case, it will be the U.S. Coast Guard. So the state authority will have to control, will have to deal with these issues. So it's going to be, in other words, a problem that each nation will have to handle on its own uh, for its ship owners. IMO is not going to set any particular standards as far as I know. I would uh, refer our listeners and viewers to uh, an episode of the podcast that we did in February with a Coast Guard lieutenant uh, up in the port of Chicago. And uh, she wrote an article that we published in Proceedings in February about cybersecurity and about the need, the Coast Guard's need to get new authorities uh, to be able to do and authorities and training and people, personnel with expertise in cybersecurity to be able to do the oversight function that they do with, with ships and with port authorities, right? To be able to know that when they go into a shipping company, when they go aboard a ship, when they inspect the, the local area networks, both of the ports and also on, on board the ships, uh, to be able to understand and, and, and evaluate the threats, the cyber threats and, and vulnerabilities, just like any company, you know, every company these days is uh, is a cyber company or is a 
you know, a network company, we all have to have secure networks. And so that was a, a really terrific uh, conversation with that Coast Guard lieutenant who does the, uh, uh, you know, cybersecurity, port security function, the oversight function uh, that the Coast Guard uh, manages. Uh, we got time for one more question. Um, so this one is, um, how does the shutdown of Red Hill, which is the big uh, Pearl Harbor fuel facility, where which which stores, I think it's over a billion gallons of fuel for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. How does the shutdown of Red Hill uh, and current efforts to waive the Jones Act for American tankers impact the availability of U.S. tankers, not just for commercial, but also military service? And we should also mention this is from our good friend Sal, who is uh, another guy very smart on the merchant marine sector who has been a guest on the podcast before. So and has written for proceedings. And yes. Well, yes. And I, in fact, we co-authored the article on uh, the Ever Given uh, last year. That's right. So, yes. So thank you. Thanks for the question. And let me just go back a little bit on this whole issue of oil tankers. Um, I think this is a very vulnerable area for American readiness. Uh, should there be some, you know, should there be a call to action or should the balloon go up? And also, I want to make it very clear, you know, although I'm employed by the Maritime Administration, I'm not speaking for the Maritime Administration at this point. I'm speaking in my personal capacity. What, what I would say is that um, we have always believed, or at least some people here in this country has believed that there are a number of uh, oil tankers that are owned by American interests, which we can activate any time to meet our needs. It used to be called the effective U.S. control shipping. And there's a large number of oil tankers which are flagged in Liberia and other countries, owned by American interests, managed by a company right here in Western Virginia. And the expectation is, you know, these ships will be available should there be should the military need um, additional tanker capacity to meet our needs? Fact of the matter is that the EUSC and their desire, in my opinion, uh, to meet American interest, I don't think it is there anymore. You know, there was a time when the EUSC was an attractive option. Those options went away with uh, the changes in the tax law that happened in 1980s. I believe it was under the Reagan administration. Since then, EUSC has become less and less of a player in terms of, you know, being the backbone to support our needs, even though we don't have a lot of oil tankers in our uh, American flag shipping. So I don't think anybody should look upon the presence of effective U.S. control oil tankers being there to bail us out at our times of need. Now, you might hear that, or I'm sure many of you are aware, and I know Sal is aware of this, uh, there is an effort to create a, a tanker, you know, similar to the maritime security program, some sort of a tanker security program, whereby there will be a limited number of ships. I think that's great. I would like to see more ships. Um, at this point, the discussion is limited to perhaps 10 ships. That's not enough. Now, in terms of breaking our, our petroleum reserves right now to meet our needs, um, again, this is a, an issue that um, before you can make any waiver to the Jones Act, there has to be approvals. And um, I, I strongly believe that if there is American capacity available, that should be used first. Will there be a need for foreign flagships? I don't know. I mean, if there is a need, if we are going to uh, take out quantities far exceeding what American ships can support, it may come to that. But there again, it needs approval from Customs and Border Protection. They are the authority which approves that. Uh, MARAD, Maritime Administration provides its recommendations, but it's a CBP decision and not a decision that DOT or um, MARAD will make. Uh, but we do have a problem in terms of tanker capacity. 
Well, that brings up some really good points. And there's been a lot more coverage, I think, in the last maybe year and more coming as we're reading uh, articles that we will publish later this year uh, about logistics and about the fragility of logistics supporting the sea services, uh, particularly in a high-end fight in, in, a, in the Western, uh, the p- potential of a high-end fight in the Western Pacific that, uh, you know, perhaps the U.S. doesn't, the, the U.S. Naval services don't have sufficient logistics and backed up by, as you point out, the, the Maritime Administration and the Merchant Marine uh, we've we've thinned that out. We've leaned it out over years, you know, to support uh, the ongoing op tempo in places like Fifth Fleet. And we've just leaned out the fleet. We've leaned out the logistics that supports it as well. And uh, anyway, I think that that's a, a problem and an issue that's going to have to uh, get more and more uh, oversight and interest from the administration and from Congress going forward. Um Okay, well, we are sadly out of time. Uh, Sashi, it's always great to have you on the show. And thank you again for uh, writing the U.S. Merchant Marine and World Maritime Overview uh, in the March issue of Proceedings. So that is our Naval Review. And uh, Dr. Shashi Kumar is an expert on the commercial maritime sector and the U.S. Merchant Marine. And he is a uh, frequent contributor to Proceedings. And he's been writing this section for us for 19 years. So Uh, Thank you, Shashi. It's a service to us. Thank you, Bill. Okay, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. This this and other services from the Naval Institute, such as USNI News, are brought to you by the members of the Institute. So to become a member of the U.S. Naval Institute, go to www.usni.org forward slash join. Your Membership of the Institute is, uh, is critical to everything that we do and all the, all the content that we bring you uh, through our news team, our podcasts, our websites, proceedings, naval history, books, everything that we do, the, the, the uh, events and conferences that we put on around the nation as well. So thank you to our members. And remember, until next week, victory begins at the Naval Institute.